1: Thanks for listening to the Jazz Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, with a begging bowl in hand, Metro Vancouver Mayor is speaking a unified voice, appealing for more transit funding from Victoria and Ottawa. Is anybody listening? And as our population balloons, so does demand on our health care system. Can public health care cope when 337 thousand people have joined BC's MSP system in just the past two years alone? Health Minister Adrian Dix joins us. That's all next on the Jazz Johal Show podcast. Speaking of growth, a group of Metro Vancouver mayors rolled out a new campaign designed to show public support for provincial and federal funding for transit expansion. Uh, A variety of mayors I was watching on the news earlier today were speaking on the issue. One of them was Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke. She spoke at the press conference. Take a listen. We are here to call on the federal and provincial governments to commit the funding that is urgently urgently needed to deliver the critical transit investment that our growing region requires. Our transit system simply cannot keep up with the demand of our region as it grows at a record pace putting further pressures on affordability. Here in Surrey, transit is overloaded and overcrowded. Ridership in Surrey is booming and has exceeded the pre-pandemic levels. Increased service is critical to support our continued growth and our housing needs in Surrey and immediate action is required now. Uh, That was Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke speaking earlier today. There were a variety of mayors and one of them uh, that was also there was Brad West. He's the mayor of Port Coquitlam, but he's also the chair of the TransLink Mayor's Council. And he joins us now. Brad, thank you for your time today for having me, Jez. Uh, how successful do you think you'll be? Because there's a tremendous amount, of course, ask of Victoria and Ottawa for a variety of issues. What makes you think Vancouver's transit needs are a priority, particularly for Ottawa?
2: Well, you're, you're right. There are a lot of com- competing demands right now, and I'm certainly cognizant of, of that. A number of our systems are under pressure. But the reality is the federal and provincial government have both put a massive priority on housing we have seen them make very significant changes uh, uh, the province in particular with their legislation around housing they've established incredibly ambitious targets for housing uh, and it's very clear that if you're going to have those sort of housing targets if you're going to have a huge push to build more homes you have to have transit and transportation options that go along with it those two things cannot be divorced from one another if you do that what's going to happen people are going to have no choice but to use their vehicle people use their vehicle you're going to see increased congestion the deterioration in quality of life in this region the province and the federal government won't meet their uh, climate objectives so I do think that they're going to, and certainly they have communicated to us, that they understand that these investments in transit are really critical because it underpins a whole bunch of the goals that they've set for themselves.
1: What's your ask?
2: We're asking for $500 million in capital funding, and we need $200 million in operating funding to be able to uh, to then operate the expansion that we're planning for that would allow us to be able to proceed with uh expansion of uh our brt bus rapid transit lines uh that we have uh, unanimously as mayors come together and supported uh, in some of the most congested and busiest parts and fastest growing parts of our region Uh, we've identified as the first three uh surrey langley and the north shore um in addition to that, it will allow us to begin to uh, roll out expanded bus service uh, as well as our uh, rapid transit e- extensions as well. So um, that's the ask. Uh, we're, we're trying to be very cognizant, again, of the fact that there are a number of demands out there. Um, and the needs of our transit system are great, and they're throughout all of Metro Vancouver. Uh, but we understand that th- this is going to be a, uh, a process of phasing things in Uh, But we have to get to a point where we're delivering expansion. We're delivering year-over-year improvement. Uh, I mean, that's the only way that we're going to be successful as a region.
1: And we, you're talking about the bus rapid transit the, at the North Shore. That would be Park Royal to Metrotown via Fibs Exchange and Willingdon Avenue, 200th, uh, Langley to Maple Ridge along 200th Avenue, and, of course, straight to White Rock along the King George Boulevard. You've talked about the $200 million operating uh, cost. That's going to be, I guess, year over year uh, ongoing. Um, is I just want to confirm this. So the dollars for the present SkyTrain expansion to Langley City, those are that money is there. That is going to move forward. That's going to go. The money is there and set aside already.
2: We've got the money for. Uh, th- that's correct. I mean, the the money uh, is in place uh, for the construction. That's well underway um it's going to cost money to operate that system as well mm-hmm. uh, that's always the other piece of it uh, and that gets to one of the larger issues and where we're having discussions with the province as well which is we actually need to get a, a, a different model uh for our transit agency in terms of how it's uh how it's financed beyond uh, capital um, but that will be our, our next challenge one thing <laughs> at a time i suppose um, the, the first and most urgent need right now is we cannot get ourselves in the position, which we will come to in April if we have not been able to secure these uh, funding commitments from the province, of having to delay these projects, uh, of having to look at where service reductions could occur. Um, that would come at the worst possible time because the system is already under a massive amount of strain. TransLink leads ridership recovery in North America. Mm -hmm. Uh, It has, in some parts of the region, uh, grown by leaps and bounds, Surrey and south of the Fraser and Delta, uh, and in Langley. Ridership is at record levels. Um, And and people are getting, rightfully, very frustrated by being passed up by a bus, by, you know, barely being able to squeeze onto a SkyTrain, Um, you this is only going to be compounded and it's going to get worse if we don't take action now. Uh,
1: When you talk about funding, I mean, how would you rebuild this transit system in regards to its funding model? And what I mean by that is every time I see a Tesla this morning, I'm driving in, I saw a Rivian, another EV uh, type vehicle. And none of those folks are playing, paying the uh, transit tax. When every time you gas up that money goes, part of that part of the dollars goes to TransLink. That's your funding model. Um, that's all going away with more evs being purchased if you to reimagine translink funding model how would it work in your mind
2: well i I couldn't agree more Uh, you have to be very alive to the transition that's happening in front of us and and right now having a funding model that depends on uh property taxes and gas taxes primarily and then a little bit on on transit fares uh is is certainly outdated and it's only going to become a bigger challenge as more and more people switch to evs uh so what's a better model um i you know there are a number of different options and and the mayor's council hasn't said this is the one it's got to be this or it's got to be that um you know certainly i think there's a recognition that um if there's you know if there's going to continue to be contributions um from road users that uh, we have to capture uh, uh, people who are driving EVs as well. Um, you're going to see by uh, by provincial uh, regulation uh, where we can actually no longer even have new gas-powered vehicles sold, you're going to have everyone eventually getting over into EVs if that's safe. It goes the way the province is laid out. So you, you got to address that. Um, and, you know, I don't think we're ruling things in or out. Uh, we are saying to the province... This is uh, a discussion that we have to have, and it quite frankly it's a discussion uh, that you know, and you would be familiar with this uh, over your time covering these things. I mean, how long have we been talking about this? I mean, whether it goes back to the referendum that happened in uh, in the region uh, and even before that, um, this is something that has plagued us for decades and it becomes very much a groundhog's day over and over again you know there's big debates over how do we uh, fund transit um we need these projects but how do we pay for them and and we never get anywhere what ends up happening is the track record is once a decade or so usually tied to an international event like expo or the olympics mm-hmm. we get a major expansion of the transit system other than that you know we kind of just <laughs> we just kind of um you know uh, carry on with uh, you know very incremental improvements um that's just not going to cut it anymore for a region like ours that's experiencing the type of growth that we are uh, record saying population growth you previewed the fact that you're doing a deep dive in into immigration and that's where I think the federal government really has a responsibility to be a part of this. They are driving a huge amount of this growth in our region it's putting huge demands on many systems including transit uh, and they need to be part of that solution.
1: Brad thank you so much for your time. They look forward to talking to you on this issue uh, in the weeks ahead because the time is a ticking as they say. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me Jess. Over the past month, fires have burned four churches across Alberta. The most recent fire happened on December 20th, destroying a church northeast of Airdrie. Upon arrival, the structure was fully involved, leading to a total loss uh, to the structure. Take a listen to a report filed by Global News uh, regarding that fire and three others. I had to get up and come down and have a look. Couldn't believe it.
3: Word of the fire at Biceker's Seventh-day Adventist church spread quickly in the rural community. The church had been built by its own members back in 1945.
4: Very, very sad to see
5: a heritage building like this be destroyed.
3: Countless memories were made within the building's four walls, now reduced to rubble.
5: It's a very devastating feeling that this building is gone.
3: This is the 15th suspicious church fire in Alberta this year, and the fourth in just two weeks. Other fires leveled churches in Janvier and Barhead County.
6: These are pioneer churches. This one was built in 1914, so there's a lot of history involved with these churches and the settling of the area. So it's a loss to not only just the people in the community, but I think to as a province as whole that we're losing some of this history.
3: The RCMP says five years ago, they were only seeing three or four fires per year, but the arsons have been steadily increasing. To date, RCMP have arrested suspects in five of this year's 15 suspicious church fires. But fighting the fires and investigating their causes can be difficult.
6: One of the challenges we have in any of these rural fires is water supply because we don't have any other water than what we
1: bring, especially this time of year. It's harder to get any water from a static source.
3: Sarah Ryan, Global
1: News. Now, it's been reported by the CBC that at least 33 Canadian churches have burned to the ground since May of 2021. Uh, 24 of those fires were deliberately set, while some are under investigation. Many have said that there's been a dramatic increase in church fires since we first heard of potential graves at residential schools. Now, it's important to note that the RCMP, RCMP, in the case of Alberta, have said that in some cases the fires uh, have been set by people with mental health issues or known arsonists, and there wasn't a broad conspiracy of people working together to set churches on fire. Fire, but many have said that when it comes to this issue, um, there is a concern uh, that there have been repercussions uh, over uh, the questions many people have asked around uh, our colonial past uh, and the recent discovery of potential burial sites at former residential schools, and if there is any connection in regards to some of these church fires. Well, joining me now is Breen Olette. He's a Vancouver based lawyer of Metis descent and a former election candidate for the federal NDP. Uh, Breen, good to see you again. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. I really appreciate you coming in. I think it's an important issue that we talk about. When you hear that report and many others online, um, how do you how do you look at this issue? I mean, it's a very complex one, uh, and we don't have all the facts on all these issues, but it is an issue that I think many Christians have raised concerns about, aboriginal leaders have raised concerns about. How do you see this? Well,
4: as you said, it's a very complicated issue, and um, when, I, when I look at it, I always turn to social media and mm-hmm. check and see what the average person is saying, and there's a lot of confusion, a lot of um, simplification Um, and so when I see it I look at it as an opportunity to broaden the discussion and talk more about, well, how did we get here? Mm -hmm. Why is this happening?
1: Um, As somebody of of Aboriginal heritage, how would how do you address this? Do you think there is I mean, we just don't know but uh, do you think some of this is due to the broader conversation of the church's involvement in residential schools and what has transpired, and the conversation that we've been having broadly as a society.
4: I think it is possible. Um, uh, you know, as the RCMP said, there isn't any evidence of it. Uh, but um, uh, I think one of the key things that has been said is that this is not this is not some conspiracy. It's not some some kind of. For lack of a better word it's not a terrorist act it's these are individuals that are that are doing this and um with the numbers that have been uh um, charged uh, we don't even know exactly who the people are uh, uh not even a majority of who the people are that are doing them mm-hmm. It could be people with uh with the you know residential schools' history in mind but it could also be for completely different reasons um you know the the and this is not taking aim at at uh, Christianity as a religion as a whole, but we know that uh, that uh, many different people from many different walks of life have been harmed by uh, various Christian churches uh, in in the past
1: but do you think Christians have a right to be concerned and to raise this issue and say these this is our faith this is this is the house of God for us uh, this is an attack on our faith i
4: think they, I think they have i think they do have a right to uh, To be concerned. Uh, And, uh, you know, keep in mind, too, that uh, a number of these churches have burned uh, on uh, reserve. So, uh, you know, there are people in, you know, indigenous people in these communities who are concerned, their leadership who are concerned. Um, You know, when when a person goes out on their own and burns down a building, no matter what the reason is, no matter what kind of uh, evil may have you know, befell them in the past in relation to that building um, in indigenous decision making in in my experience, in my walk of life um, we make consensus based decisions. We don't act alone. We talk as a community. We determine what the best course of action is. If the community determines that they want to demolish that building, they'll do it safely and effectively without any risk to uh, loss of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, if on the other hand they decide that there's a better use for that building if it's no longer being used as a church, then they will, as as some First Nations have, they will repurpose it. They'll use it for something
1: uh, important uh, that will help to build their community. Are, are most churches uh, on First Nations that you know of? How are they viewed? Like when if you're a resident of these communities and you see this church, you know the history, and, you know the broader conversation that's going on. How are they viewed? I mean, you've already said leadership isn't happy that this is happening. First Nations leadership buildings are at times repurposed. And if you are going to demolish it, you do it safely. But in regards to the psychological aspects of it and just seeing this building in your community, how do you think First Nations view uh, a structure like that in their community?
4: Well, I don't have a wide selection of people that I've talked to, but when I was a lawyer with the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women,
1: mm-hmm.
4: uh, the, the subject did come up uh, during testimony at times. Some people would like to see the buildings demolished uh, because of what happened to them. Um, and others um, uh, would like to see the buildings repurposed or in communities where the buildings had re- been repurposed, people were happy that the community had an opportunity to repurpose them. But that didn't change the fact that even in those communities where such buildings had been repurposed, there were people who would not go near that building ever again because of the harm that they suffered there.
1: What do you say to uh, to, uh People who are listening to us of the Christian faith and say, look, if this was a gurdwara, if this was a, a mosque, uh, a mandir, a synagogue, uh, we would having, be having a much different conversation. Because it's a church, perhaps we are not not taking it as seriously, but certainly the level of discourse isn't, isn't uh, wouldn't be as, as, as pitched, it would be much more of a, a bigger conversation.
4: Well, and that, that is a huge conversation in, in its own right. I think in this instance, when we're talking about the Christian, Catholic, and, and, uh, and Protestant churches in relation to residential schools and the history of Indigenous people, we're talking about churches that were placed in Indigenous territory forcefully by federal policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were used in many instances, not all instances, but in many instances to commit heinous acts of of the crimes of apartheid and genocide as they're known in international law mm-hmm. and that is part of the difference that we're we're dealing with here when you have people who are so incredibly wronged in the past um, they're, they're, they're you carry that intergenerationally you know my family carries that intergenerationally and I didn't grow up on reserve, I'm Métis, I grew up in the plains in, in Saskatchewan. Mm-hmm. But um, it, it's it's no different the harms that uh, that my family has suffered in the past have carried forward through the generations.
1: Where do we go from here? I mean, the conversation I mean this is one new story and this is I think it's going to continue obviously but the broader conversation of reconciliation is part of that conversation as well. Where do we go from here? How do you see 2024 2025 and moving forward on this? Like where are we on all this? There was a tremendous amount of of uh, media attention and conversation. We've now sort of gone into other things to a certain degree. Where are we on in, in regards to reconciliation in your mind?
4: That's, that's the best question. Um, there was a, a U of T professor, Paulina uh, Johnson, who was uh, interviewed uh, around this story recently, and and she said that uh, Canadians weren't facing the truth, and that was part of the problem. And, you know, it's not just reconciliation. It's truth and reconciliation, and there are Canadians out there that are denialists. They deny that anything was ever done wrong. And they deny on tiny little bases like, oh, there, are, there have been no bodies found at any of these residential schools, so it never happened. Well, we know that in 1914, the Canadian government put down in writing that they were aware that 50% of the children attending residential schools were dying. 50%. We know what happened. We know that thousands of Indigenous women and girls are going missing across the country. We know that hundreds of thousands of Indigenous children have been taken forcefully from their families and placed in foster care. These are all state criminal acts under international law that Canada hasn't faced judgment for and may very well never face judgment for, but they still are terribly harmful. And Canadians don't have to take ownership for the crimes done by their state and by people of the past, but they shouldn't deny them. If, if people continue to deny that these things happened, there is no path forward.
1: Breen, as always, good to see you and look forward to the conversation further into 2024. Thanks so much. Thank
3: you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
1: Yesterday, park rangers and Vancouver police moved in on an encampment at Vancouver's Oppenheimer Park. Unhoused people living in the tent say they had their belongings, belongings forcibly taken away. Dozens of people were sheltering there. They were told to pack up uh, and move along. More than 20 tents were taken down and belongings were discarded. Here are some of the sounds uh, from yesterday's sweep. I'm living! That's all I'm doing and trying to Deja vu in
0: Oppenheimer Park people to nowhere on the coldest day of the year okay, that's my when did
7: i tell and,
0: you and you want me to be mobile why are you guys being hey. These are hey. are the rangers going to tell
4: you to take it down yeah <laughs> as soon as they leave i'll put it right back up
1: i have no place to go i'm homeless i've lost my wife i've lost everything i've had i'm starting over again That was some of the sounds, uh, what you're hearing uh, from yesterday. Now, plenty of response um, on on news organizations, open line calls, and of course on social media. Here's a tweet that I want to read for you. It says, quote, You can't decamp a park and expect people aren't going to end up on sidewalks. You can't decamp sidewalks and expect people aren't going to end up in parks. This vicious and inhumane cycle needs to stop. Uh, This individual who tweeted this out, here's another tweet from from him. There's something about government confiscating personal property that doesn't sit well with me. But there's this constant ping-pong match between decamping sidewalks and then parks and sidewalks again. At the end of the day, it's not working. On people coming here, the population is mostly B.C. That was a response to another tweet. But you get the gist of what this individual was saying. The individual in question is Kareem Alam. Mr. Alam is a former chief of staff to the mayor, Ken Sim, and also was the campaign manager as well. And he joins us now. Kareem, thank you for uh, speaking to us today.
8: Thanks for having me on again,
1: Jazz. So uh, this is what I'm going to call the city policy, but certainly the mayor is the mayor. You were the former chief of staff. Uh, you were his uh, campaign manager, historic win. Uh, why did you feel you need to speak out this time?
8: I just feel that um, uh, we're stuck in uh, a policy paradigm here where the situation isn't getting better. And as I said in my tweet, we're playing a ping pong match between the uh, Camping people on sidewalks and, and, and parks, and it's keep going back and forth. We decamped one in, back in April. Uh, we decamped Hastings Street. People end up in parks. We now decamp parks. They're going to now end up back on Hastings Street. We're not actually solving the problem. We're not moving this forward. Uh, fundamentally, uh, the lack of housing, uh, the fact that the numbers of these people are growing... The fact that in Vancouver there are 9,000 shelter spaces and in Burnaby there are only 200 shelter spaces means that Vancouver is taking an oversized responsibility in this regional issue. Mm -hmm. Um, But the solutions aren't actually achieving the outcomes that we want. And um, these tents that just got decamped in Oppenheimer Jazz, um, they've been there in Oppenheimer Park now for the last two, three weeks the decampment yesterday, the timing really was suspicious to me. We know on Thursday it's going to be minus 13. We're going to see lows of minus 13. Couldn't we have decamped four or five days later? Why are we confiscating people's warm sleeping bags right ahead of a cold winter snap? Um, what are sup- these people supposed to do? Are they supposed to freeze to death on the, side of, on the sidewalk? That's, that, there was a sense of empathy that uh, I have towards these people um, that have nowhere to go. So you think
1: council is failing on this policy completely?
8: I don't think it's just council that's failing policy, uh, failing on this issue because Vancouver itself doesn't have the fiscal capacity to deal with this issue. The city of Vancouver's budget is $2 billion a year. The province's budget is $60-70 billion a year. Fundamentally, all levels of government, I think, have to take some responsibility for this issue. One of the things that I find extremely frustrating, if you spend time on the downtown east side and you engage some of the residents there – We're talking about Afghanistan veterans, people who served in uniform, got injured in the field of duty, Mm -hmm. um, took shrapnel when they drove over an IED, and all they did wrong in their lives was follow their doctor's prescription on Oxy, get addicted to this drug, and end up on the street. We're talking about police officers. We're talking about ambulance. We're talking about fire. We're talking about oil riggers. all people who got injured on the job and got addicted to oxy. We're also talking about a large indigenous population um, that is suffering from systemic issues that have evolved from residential schools. I don't think that it's solely the responsibility of the city to deal with this issue. I think the federal government through Veterans Affairs, through Indigenous and Northern Affairs Canada, and the province, we've all got to come together and stop playing ping-pong with these people's lives.
1: But do you think that there is also a line in the center? and, and I agree with you, we may not have enough of the housing, but at the same time, I don't want to see my parks filled with tents. I do not want to see uh, this beautiful city uh, have these tents in areas where they're not supposed to be. I know they may, that may not sound sympathetic, but I think there should be a line as well saying, we are not going to accept this. The minute you accept this... Uh, well, then it continues to spread. Uh, by all means, let's challenge Burnaby and push Burnaby to build more Surrey, Port Moody. It shouldn't be just a Vancouver issue. But Vancouver and council still should, as, at the very least, have the right to say, move along, folks, because the taxpayers who pay for all this don't want to see this. Don't Shouldn't there be some sort of line and saying, no, it's not acceptable?
8: Absolutely. I agree with you. Parks are not an appropriate pay- place for people to be. Uh, but we all need to acknowledge one thing. Vancouver has been extremely generous as a city. Vancouver has 25. 25- isn't that
1: the problem? Hang on, so I don't mean to jump in. But isn't that part of the problem? And this is the place you end up. They're not really going to do anything to you. You can sort of uh, sort of stay wherever you want. You're not really going to get arrested for anything. And I understand these people have deal- dealing with drugs, some of them have mental health issues. But isn't that part of the problem that we have now created this city, or at least this, this city here, that, hey, uh, it's open season. Come on down. Uh, you're really not going to get harassed. It's going to be okay. Uh, this is the place to be. And you know what? It's, it's, it's not Calgary. It's not Manitoba. The weather's a lot better over here. I mean, isn't that part of the culture that par- partially is driving a lot
8: of this too? Well, the first thing I want to deal with is that we've got to understand that this is not an outside-of-B.C. situation. The vast majority of people on the downtown east side are British Columbians. This is not Ken Sims' fault. Uh, this is not Gregor Robertson's fault. It's not Kennedy Stewart's fault. Vancouver has 25% of the population for the metro Vancouver region, but holds 75% of the social, supportive, and shelters uh, in the region. So Vancouver has 75% and they're 25% of the population. Burnaby shoved this problem down Vancouver's throat. The North Shore shoved this problem down Vancouver's throat. Richmond, Delta, everyone except for Langley um, has been pushing this issue into Vancouver. Everyone in the region needs to take responsibility for their populations, the parents, the councillors, the MLAs. But frankly, Vancouver's generosity is being abused by its neighbours And it's time for everyone, not just in the lower mainland, but across the province, to take responsibility uh, for their own local populations.
1: We're joined by show contributor, Jamie Judson. How are you today? Oh, I'm
0: not so bad, thanks. How are you?
1: I'm good. I'm very good. A lot of issues. I I thought, you know, I'd ease into the week first week back. (laughs) We've got no. street sweeps going on. We've got uh, TransLink funding, lots of stuff going on. And, of course, on Monday, we had Pope Francis talking about a universal ban when it comes to, as he called it, the despicable practice of surrogacy. And yesterday, you had a really cool feature in regards to mm-hmm. those who don't support um, the uh, pontiff's uh, views uh, on this issue. Now you've got another issue focusing on Something similar, and this all came, uh, this all happened because of an email we received after your feature yesterday.
0: Absolutely. Um, We received an email from something, because the. fertility is such a big can of worms in this country mm-hmm. that I didn't think that it was. I had no idea. So we got um, an email from somebody. He's asked to go just by Matthew because mm-hmm. obviously there are some privacy concerns here with the subject matter. He is a local donor conceived person. So he was conceived using um, donation sperm from sperm bank. Mm-hmm. And he said that there are it's, it, it's a, a whole other can of worms of legalities and regulations or lack thereof. So um, I asked him, too. So he was kind enough to talk with me today. And I asked him about his story and how he came to even find out he was donor conceived.
5: So I found out because of CKNW, actually. Uh, when I was about three years old, uh, my mom was listening to CKNW in around 1988. And uh, there was a program about adoptees and how important it was to tell adoptees that they're adopted when they're very young, so they internalize it as normal. And, you know, it's not, a, not an issue to them, it's not a trauma to find out when they're mm-hmm. 7 or 17 or 70. And so my mom discussed it with my dad and they agreed that it was a good idea. My dad also had some experience with that. He just got an adopted brother and adopted sister. They decided to sit down and tell me. I don't actually remember the discussion, but I do remember telling the neighbor's kid, who's a friend of mine, a little three-year-old playmate. I do remember telling him about it. And then his dad hearing it and saying, oh, you probably shouldn't tell people that. Most of my siblings, though, and I should say there's about 26 siblings so far, that they found out through a DNA test. Most parents didn't tell their kids. And then, you know, you do ancestry to DNA one day and then you go, well, who are these, you know, seven other people that <laughs> <laughs> it matches? Whoa.
0: So there's 26 of you in your sibling group so far. Have you met up in person Any with any of them? Oh, most of us.
5: Really? Most of us have. Uh, we're probably going to get together. A few of us, at least, at the, the the local ones, at least at the end of the month around. We're planning to, and we get together maybe quarterly,
0: something like that. Do you know the bank from from which the the donor donated to? was it an American one?
5: No, uh, he donated through uh, two doctors here in Vancouver who are pioneers oh. in the field, Gerald Corn, uh, who is deceased, and Sydney Evans. I don't know if he's deceased. So they were, um, the, they were who facilitated everything. Not a huge fan of uh, those doctors, particularly Gerald Court. to be frank. He burned my records. What? Uh, there, was a woman, there was a woman who went to court to get access to the records, and turns out he only had an obligation under B.C. law to keep them for seven years, so he just burned them all. Ah. And uh, the court actually ruled in his favor anyways that uh, if you're an adoptee, in D.C. you have a right to your adoption records, but there's no such right for donor conceived people. So that's one of the areas where I think there's a real problem in the law. And it's not just for like emotional reasons, but also practical reasons. There's no way, um, like our donor, he actually was part of that lawsuit trying to get the anonymity overturned so people could opt in to find him and he could opt in to find them. So who, who does it hurt really to, to have that option? And you might want that if there was a heritable disease and, and like I know someone who lost their child because they didn't know they had this genetic condition that they didn't from a donor. This is separate. This is in New York, but there's no mechanism to inform offspring of these diseases, and uh, it's yeah, it's just very frustrating that, that there's a discrimination inherent in our law.
0: I'm assuming the way you're talking about him, like you've met your donor, or at least you're in contact yes. with your donor.
5: Yeah, I met him. I met him twice deliberately. Uh, funny thing is, uh, he kept his boat at the same marina. My dad kept his boat. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I ran into them there a couple times. I was like, what are you doing here? Yeah, I've I met them a couple times. I think about five or six of us have met them. There's more that are interested, but not everyone's local either. We we're spread across you know the entire world, from Australia to Latvia. So, oh
0: wow! Yeah. what was that experience like, if I can ask, like meeting your meeting your donor?
5: It was interesting. There was less of an emotional connection than I
0: expected, but mm-hmm. he, there's um, like meeting
5: uh, my siblings. It's, it's, it's like a one is a stranger with your face, which is a yeah, <laughs> a little strange, um, and it's oddly familiar in a few senses of the word. Right, you might have mannerisms in common, you might have, uh, and just certain certain ways of of approaching things. So it's always an interesting experience. And then, yeah, for the donor, actually, my dad who encouraged me to meet him, my dad said to me like, you know, he's the donor is in his at the time mid seventies, right. You, know, you never know what's going to happen tomorrow, and you might regret it if you don't do this. So, I did.
0: Thank you so much for sharing your story with me, and it's been great.
1: Yeah,
5: thank you. Thank you for letting, letting me tell this and taking on this issue, because like I said, it, it, I think it's important, and it's not being addressed.
1: You know, when I was listening to Matthew there, it, from the Pope's comments on, on Monday to today, mm-hmm. we've had three segments on this now. It, you know, if this doesn't, you know, sort of break up your... Old perceptions of family can only be a nuclear family. Oh, yeah. And how, you know, in the end of the day, and this is where I think the, you know, the pontiff in his comments, and I get, understand where he's coming from, and I think to a certain degree you can talk a little bit about the commercialization of pregnancy, and I think he's got a point there. Um, but broadly speaking, uh, where society's headed today, uh, and that's part of the challenges, I think the culture wars that we have today is yeah. the traditional nuclear family, or what we viewed as a nuclear family, has always been perceived as the ideal image of family.
0: Heavy finger quotes there nowadays. <laughs> Cause also when I was talking to Matthew, we had a good point. Um, is that like parents are just getting older nowadays people are getting older before they start their families just because yeah. of the very real economic challenges um Matthew and I are both millennials like it's hard to be a millennial and get the resources to like have to get yourself together to have a baby and sometimes you're in your mid late 40s when when that comes together for you so you do have to look at sort of alternative options and we didn't get to talk about this either. there's so much in this in our chit chat, but uh, a lot of Canadians who are seeking sperm donation, they go through American uh, sperm banks because Mm -hmm. in America, you can, there's a financial incentive. Medical ethics are much different in America than they are in Canada. So there's a lot of money that can be offered and you can get tax credits even for doing this and for, you know, getting yourself to the sperm bank. So then if you're dealing with an American agency, if you're trying to get, you know, just if that that's what's available, that's where the supply is. So then you have to deal with all kinds of other regulations that they have or that they might not have. Like they might not tell you, they might not, you know, Tell you how to do screening on people. They might not. They might lie to you about medical records, or they might hmm. obscure medical records of right. your donor because they claim anonymity. But it's also hard to claim anonymity because anyone can just do DNA testing and find out who your siblings are. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, there's all sorts of like limiting family groups and things like that. And it's a can. It's, it's a can of worms. It's been fertility week, and I've learned so much. It's a fascinating <laughs> topic for me.
1: You weren't expecting coming to work on Monday. That you no to pun intended
0: expecting but like yeah i truly and then and then papa frank really set it up for me the pope did it and he's like said some interestingly out-of-pocket stuff there you go thanks papa
1: frank Yesterday, we spent a lot of time talking about immigration and international students, specifically how Australia and the UK uh, in December announcing that uh, there'll be a fundamental reset to their immigration system. In fact, they're going to cut immigration levels to half of what they were just last year. while we here in Canada continue with essentially the status quo. In fact, we're expecting 485,000 immigrants to move here this year, 500,000 next year. And that, of course, doesn't include international students, which is which usually hovers around a million people. Well, today we want to look at this record immigration numbers and the impact they're having on our health care system right here in British Columbia. Joining me now to talk a little bit about demographics and our health care system is BC's Minister of Health, Adrian Dix. Minister, thank you for joining us today.
6: Great to be on the show, Jeff.
1: We spend a lot of time uh, following headlines uh, every day, every week um, uh, on this program and others, and on the, focusing on the news of the day. But so much of... What drives this uh, issue is demographics, particularly for the healthcare care sector. Now, yesterday, uh, Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief, was on the show talking about uh, wh- what, it, what impact immigration was having uh, on our health care system. Now, according to Keith, I think over the past two years, we've had more than 337,000 people join uh, BC's medical service plan. Walk me through what you're searing, seeing and what you're hearing just with that many people being added to the system so quickly,
6: it's it's dramatic, and we've never seen it before. Just as a rate of growth, take a year, ten years ago, two thousand twenty-two, twenty-three against two thousand twelve, thirteen. The uh, this is more than four times the rate of population increase of that year, and um, uh, and so we've seen in the last uh, two years, three hundred thirty-seven thousand people more in MSP, and when you and if you think it's slowing. The the second quarter of uh, of this year, the past year, 2023, 50,000, 53,000 net migration to BC. And in the third quarter, 61,000, which we've got today, 61,000 net migration. That's from other provinces and internationally. So what we're seeing in total in the first three quarters of 2022 is 150,000 more people. So what does that mean? Just think about the family doctors we sometimes talk about, say they have a patient load of 1,200, 1,250, 1,300 patients or something in that range. And those are the kinds of ranges we're talking about in our new agreement. Well, just for those 337,000 people, that's 300 net new family doctors, right? Mm -hmm. If you want to provide each of them with a family doctor or nurse practitioner or others, right? So that's a significant increase. And so how do you respond? I think we need to uh, train more people. We need to... Change the way uh, the healthcare system does uh, its work. And that's why we changed the payment model, for example, for family medicine. And we saw this past year an increase of 697, uh, new people who didn't practice weren't active in family physicians in the previous year who are active now. And that's a huge increase. That's a 16% increase in one year. And you would normally see a huge impact of that, but that impact is mitigated by the sheer numbers of people coming to British Columbia as well.
1: Can the system sustain itself at the rate we're going at? I mean, I can see a year 's growth two years' growth where it it spikes, but this isn't slowing down. We we're just doing a segment on immigration and international students yesterday on the show and and i and you're already seeing it in Australia and the u k where they've announced during in December that they're going to slow down immigration, cut it back significantly over the next few years. We're not doing that in this country. We're still going at the same level, if not even uh, uh, moving along faster. I mean, can a system, the healthcare system itself, sustain that type of growth year over year over year? I mean, a couple of years is one thing, but if this goes into year three, year four, year five. One, I'm not—I don't want to use the word collapse, but it is quite concerning, is it not?
6: Well, uh, that's why we have to deliver a higher and higher level of service. I mean, there is to a degree on these issues. And uh, Minister Ravi Kala, I think, spoke about this on your show some months ago, the disconnect between the policymakers around immigration and the delivery of housing and healthcare services, which tends to be in the provinces, right? So there's a disconnect between this, uh, in our federal system, I think you might argue. Uh, jazz. But that said, uh, I would say that, of course, some of those the people coming are working in healthcare itself. We see a record number of internationally educated doctors who came to BC last year, a record number of internationally educated nurses. So I think the system is setting records for surgery, setting records for diagnostic tests, setting records for primary care tests and primary care visits. And we're gonna have to continue to do that and meet that test, both to address issues of immigration, but as importantly, an aging population. Um, because, as you know, just to give you an example of Surrey, um, Jazz, Surrey mm-hmm. is going to see an increase in the next uh, 15 years of about 240%, so huge increase in the number of people over 80. number of people under 20 is going to increase by about 20% now. That, that tells you that Syria is going to return to the average. It's now our youngest community in B.C. It's going to become an average community. We're going to have to address that by addressing long-term care as well. So it's not a, just a quantitative issue,
5: because mm-hmm.
6: if you have a lot of people coming in, in their 20s who are relatively healthy, then that's not as big a burden to the healthcare system, although it is to housing, but also a qualitative issue. B.C. gets more migrants, more people coming here from the rest of Canada um, who are retiring here, uh, and, and, and we have an aging population. As well, so both of those are challenges. I think the answer is yes, we can deal with it, but it requires the kind of record investment that we're making um, in our healthcare system this year and a health human resources plan designed to address that.
1: Now, before I want to I talk a little bit about our aging population, but before we get there, I want to get back to the issue of just the system sustaining itself. One of the reasons, as you say, is is, is attracting new nurses, new doctors, uh, in all facets of healthcare. Um, and you did talk about international, um, uh, uh, you know, nurses coming in and doctors and bringing record amounts of foreign trained medical professionals. That's all well and good, but between that and locally trained doctors, number one, is there fundamentally enough people that we're hiring that A, we can stay up with this growth and B, uh, let's be honest, much of our infrastructure for these hospitals uh, have been built many, many decades ago. They need to be replaced and with a growing population, more hospitals need to be built. I'm just wondering between building capital, uh, the capital spend in regards to building new hospitals and requiring and needing new employees, like the system cannot move fast enough, train people fast enough, we cannot build enough to stay up with all this growth?
6: Well, I think we had also a period of time when the building didn't occur. In long-term care, we have an aging population, a growth in our seniors population is the fastest growing part of our population overall. In the 10 years before I became Minister of Health, they spent $17 million on long-term care capital. That's 1.7 a year. That's about three beds a year. That's what they did. Now We're spending in the billions on that. But we don't just we're just not having to deal with the current situation. We're having to make up for a significant deficit over ten years. But I think if we we absolutely can meet this test and it demonstrates the value of public health care, a public health care system that supports people and provides care at primary care and in long term care and in the community and in acute care it shows the value of that. We're building an unprecedented number of hospitals. People talk about it all the time, but you're hearing it, of course. The new hospital in Surrey, the new St. Paul's Hospital, it was delayed, I think, 20 years before we started building it, and in Terrace and in about 18 other communities, I won't go through all of them, you'll be happy to know, Jeff, where we're having major new hospital projects. But yeah, we have to build out hospitals, not just because of, um, of, uh, of a growing population, but because qualitatively the health health has changed and healthcare has changed from the 1950s, say, when Mills Memorial Hospital was built in Terrace, and 2024, when the new uh, hospital will be built in Terrace, for example. So we have to do it for both reasons. Now, the good news is, as well, we're doing some things and, and uh, we've bent uh, the system is bent towards um, improvement, right? So you think of what the challenge of a cataract surgery decades ago and the relative ease of a cataract surgery now. So some, uh, we've got to use also the resources of the system to deliver more efficient care as well. Uh,
1: if you were Kingford, in, and I know you're a supporter of a robust immigration system, but do you think a lot of what we're talking about in dealing with these challenges could be addressed simply by reducing our immigration levels presently and whether or not they, be, they go up again at a later date. But and that's not just a health care question. That's a housing question. You talked about Ravi Kalan, your colleague. He'll be on the show next week talking about the issues of housing. Uh, you can talk about our commuting. Uh, this is all impacting all facets of BC life. Uh, it, how much of a message do you think from the provincial side we should be sending to the federal government? Say, hey, slow down. When people move to this country, they generally move to Ontario and British Columbia, especially new immigrants, perhaps it's time you and Ottawa slow down here because the impact on our health care system and on our commuting and on our housing is profound that we just cannot continue to move as quickly as quickly as we need to to deal with all these issues. I mean, part of this, this message in regards to quality health care is sending a message to federal government, slow down when it comes to immigration.
6: Well, I think that there's two things to reflect on in immigration. And this is not me. This is Adrian Dix, uh, observer of the federal scene, I guess, Mm -hmm. speaking, if, if you will, is that we in Canada tend to have more control of our immigration than many other countries because of our geographic location. So we have the capacity to make our own decisions about these questions, about levels and so on. This is an advantage for us as a country, right? It is very challenging for people all over the world to come here you know, except through organized immigration, right? And so what I would say to the federal government in response to that is, if you're making decisions about immigration and you're not thinking about housing, you're not thinking about health care, then you're not thinking enough. So you have to make the decisions with all of these things in mind for all of us, and and transportation and all these other questions. That said, I'll, I'll, I'll give you just another side of it, uh, Jeff. So you know because you grew up in the interior, you probably know a community called Fort St. James. Mm-hmm. Not, it's not that close to Williams Lake, but uh,
1: it's, my it's, uh, cousin, I, I, like I, are, I spent a couple summers up there. My uh, my cousins lived up there. I know Fort St. James very well.
6: Yeah. Um, we're building a new hospital in Fort St. James, right? Mm-hmm. Well, in Fort St. James, they're going to see in the next number of years, so we sometimes think about Vancouver in this question, mm-hmm. we're going to see an increase in the population over 75 of about 185%. Massive increase seniors. In it's an aging out of the population. And a decreased uh, jazz, a decrease in the population under 65, so massive increase in seniors and a decrease in working in the working age population. Now that's that's not a good situation for a community. You need working people in healthcare. You need healthcare assistants and nurses and doctors and others. So um, part of the the immigration question has to be seen differently in different places and through different lenses. In Fort St. James, for that community to continue. To be a, a, a great community to live in, we need to, at the very least, attract a lot of healthcare workers to that community. I think that's fair to say, for our new hospital there and so on. So that's a complicated situation, right? Because we in that community, surely we need more working age people.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about our aging population for a second. What num- number that strike that sort of uh, hits you uh, pretty hard? It gives you an idea of, of where we're at. Uh, next year, I'm told the seniors' population in B.C. Will have exceeded, I think, a million people. But there will be more people next year, over the age of 65, than people 17 or younger in this province. What do we? What does that mean for our healthcare system?
6: Well, it means um, it means some significant challenges. I talked about Surrey uh, a little while ago. Now, mm-hmm. let me start by saying, yes, this isn't such a bad thing, right? I mean, um, uh, for all the people listening to it, and myself, I'm I'm 59. Um, when public healthcare system started, the average life expectancy at 65 was about 12 to 13. Now the average uh, life expectancy at 65 has gone up uh, to almost twice that. Right? People are many, many people um, are living well into their 80s, and many people are living into their 90s. This is not a bad thing in life. It's a good thing. It reflects some broader improvements in society and. Uh, it tells us that our seniors' population is actually quite diverse, right? That someone at 65, 66, 67 has very different health care needs and community needs than someone who's 88, 89, or 90, right? It's a diverse age of, uh, of a population. But you're absolutely right. What it means for health care is, is an increase, I would say, in age-related uh, in age-related illness, right? And that's why, for example, in the next 12 years, we're going to go from 30,000 cancer diagnoses a year to 45,000 cancer diagnoses in a year. And that is a very significant and daunting thing. That's a 50% increase. We have some challenges now that we're addressing, but that's going to be 50% more in a decade. So that tells you, and a lot of that increase is age-related cancer, right? A lot of that increase is age-related cancer. So that means we're going to have to not just increase the level of service for people over 65, but the diversity of that service because people's needs over the maybe the 25 years they live after they become seniors, after they reach 65, are going to change over that period. So you need not just long-term care but assisted living and community programs and other things to support uh, seniors as they live, As increasing number of seniors as they live as seniors for a longer period of time.
1: But the pressure that it puts on the system... Uh, I don't understand how we can keep up with it without raising taxes or asking people to find significant more dollars uh, for health care. I mean, we're sending people to Bellingham uh, to to sort of ease the pressure on the system. Uh, Your ministry, one could argue, is the ministry that eats government. It just continues to grow. And I'm, I'm not complaining. I don't think anybody... Uh, is complaining when it comes to a public health care system in the sense that we want to preserve it and we want it to be healthy. But we continue to grow the size of the Ministry of Health. We have to if we want to stay up with all this. But it also tells me even with the amount of dollars that we put in, and I think it's about 40 cents for every dollar we pay in taxes, 40 cents of every dollar we pay goes towards health care roughly uh, in and around that range, uh, that we are still struggling uh, to pay for the system with now an aging population on top of that. I mean, and, and we're shipping people to Bellingham, as I say. I mean, how, over the long term, how do we get ahead of all this?
6: Well, I have a, a somewhat more optimistic view than that, uh, Jeff, which is that, you know, you'll remember it was uh, in B.C. 15, 20 years ago, there was a big debate about the sustainability of healthcare. Mm-hmm. At the time, people said, oh, you know, we spend 40% of each dollar, or 41 or 42% of each dollar on health care in provincial, in provincial jurisdiction right? And I remember a chart, remember Carol Taylor was Minister of Finance, remember a chart saying that's going to go up to 65%. You know what? It didn't. It's still 40. It's still uh, at the same level. In fact, the share of healthcare in the provincial budget up to last year, we've had a pandemic, remember, Mm -hmm. was about the same as it was when I became Minister of Health. And what's increased and what has increased is the budget share. We were last in Canada in healthcare spending per capita when I became Minister of Health. And now we're better than that. But I, I think I think um, there has been this talk that healthcare will take over everything. I think what's important for people to think about when they think about these issues is how we define healthcare. I have type one diabetes, Jeff, yes, and uh, when I go home, um, I'm in a loving circumstance, and I have uh, an apartment, and I have a good job, and I have a wonderful relationship with my uh, my wife, my life partner, all of those things mean that I'll have a higher life expectancy and and better outcomes from my diabetes than someone who doesn't have those things, who has to choose not to buy whole fruit, which is very good, is better than buying, say, juice in a grocery store. So we've got to address not just healthcare, healthcare through the healthcare system, but ensure that people have housing, ensure we address what are called the social determinants of health. It was why it was so important in the pandemic I'd argue that children in BC went back to school earlier than in other jurisdictions because their health, their long-term health was dependent on them being in school. And our teachers did an incredible job in BC in supporting them under very challenging circumstances. Health is health is housing, health is childcare, health is, uh, is incomes, health is our economy. And so it's not just the system and we have to look at it in that way. And I'd say increasingly look at it in that way To ensure people have a high quality of life as well as extraordinary treatment when something very difficult and catastrophic happens to their health.
1: Well Minister, uh, a a fascinating conversation and uh, so many of these things always driven uh, by demographics and numbers and I really appreciate you making some time for us today. Thank you so much. Hey anytime, talk to you soon. As you heard uh, Christy Gordon there during the news break, temperatures are expected to drop well below zero uh, this week. Uh, tomorrow night, we are expected uh, to have temperatures hit as low as minus 10, even potentially minus 11, highs of minus 6, and those frigid overnight temperatures uh, will move into Friday with daytime lows potentially down to minus 11 degrees Celsius as well. You could imagine many homeless shelters are preparing for the cold snap. Joining me now is Jack uh, uh, O'Halloran, CEO of the Surrey Urban Mission Society. Jack, thank you for joining us today.
7: Oh, thank you very much for inviting me.
1: Uh, We are expecting uh, much cooler temperatures uh, in the next 24 hours or so and uh, heading into the weekend as well. Uh, Walk me through what you're seeing and and hearing uh, in Surrey in regards to this issue.
7: Well, usually when uh, we get these extreme weather um, responses, we have um, a couple extra, um, we have two places that has, unfortunately not beds, but uh, we lay out mats, um, so between our partners at Night Shift Ministry and and um, Sum's Place on King George, we get 15 mats in each area, so we can take in an extra 30 people. Now, saying that, um, the tough thing, of course, is we run five shelters, just over 200 beds, but we're uh, we're full every single night. So those 30 mats really come into could come into use.
1: And you, you expect those 30 mats to be filled uh, immediately?
7: Oh, as soon as the sun starts to go down, they, they line up outside. And unfortunately, like I say, once, once we allow 15 in, we can't take any more in. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's, there's hundreds of people on, left on the street.
1: Is there uh, any uh, conversation about extra funding for, for moments like this, where you have uh, these cold snaps that hit Vancouver during wintertime uh, that, that you can access?
7: Unfortunately, this year, no. Um, we, every year, go to the well, even in the summer, um, for the cooling stations as well. Mm-hmm. Um, now, it is, with our extreme weather, both summer and winter, it is starting to become a topic that's discussed more, but um, it's, it's the space that's really needed.
1: Hmm. Uh, give me a sense of Surrey's homeless population. You're saying like you're going to be full when did you see this number start to balloon or was there a tipping point in your mind where you, where it just has exploded?
7: No, it's, it's been like this, unfortunately, um, for years. Um, like I say, we have, um, six locations altogether. One of them is a hygiene unit where guests can come and, and do their laundry and, and have a shower. One of them is a rent subsidized, um, venue that we just opened in December the other four are full-out shelters with 213 beds, all in all. And um, we run, for for the 2023, to give you an example, Jazz, mm-hmm. we ran a 2.3% occupancy rate. Um, so that shows you how little space we have in, in 200 beds. Um, now, back in COVID, there was the North Surrey Rec Center, which had an emergency response center, but that was uh, that was never brought back after COVID.
1: Why do you think we're seeing this? You're saying you've always had a, you know, it's always been an issue of space for you. Uh, and there's been, a pro, you know, a profound conversation occurring in our city, in this province in regards to uh, growing homeless population and, and other issues mm-hmm. around crime. Uh, sometimes they're interrelated, sometimes they're not. Um, but right. what is causing this in your mind? Uh, is it COVID that really has spiked these numbers in the sense of the broader conversation or, or is there something else happening in your mind? Like why are we seeing and talking and hearing about this so often now?
7: You know, I, I really believe um, from what I've seen and what I've learned, it's, it's, this, it stems from mental illness. Um, the availability of treatment, um, I've never said in, in all my years of doing this, I've never said it's drugs um, because drugs are really a byproduct of being homeless um, I don't believe anybody wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to move to the downtown East side, or I'm going to move to Wally and become an addict today and live in an alley. Um, it's all, um, stemming from preconceived, um, or no, sorry, not preconceived, but, um, prior problems that has led to this date. Um, I've always said that, uh, you know, we're two paychecks and, um, a critical situation away from, uh, from being that person. Um, So I really think it it stems from mental illness and our our lack of uh, ability to to care for that. Uh,
1: Do you think the public still have compassion for those that are homeless? Because sometimes even on this show, I hear comments that are at times dismissive of these individuals. You hear this in passing occasionally, um, and hopefully those are just isolated comments. But do you think we still have a compassionate society for these individuals?
7: I do. When you, when you look at homeless as not an item or, um, you know, a skin rash or something, when you look at homeless as, um, a brother, a sister, Mm -hmm. um, you know, a, a, a child, um, you know, um, when you look at homeless with a face, you realize that, um, there really is love and compassion out there. And, you know, the, the government does what it can. We always say the government could do more. We wish, um, but when we when we tap into the public when we go to the public and, and ask for help when asked for financial donations when we ask for you know clothing donations and and food donations People step up, so I, I believe there is compassion out there. Uh,
1: you mentioned uh, at the beginning of our interview uh, about cooling stations, but right now obviously people will be requiring uh, to be indoors because of the cold. Uh, mm-hmm. Talk to me a little bit about what you're seeing in the summer and the impact of just heat and the homeless.:
7: The, the summer is the same thing. you know when you, when you consider that in the homeless world, people pretty much carry around their life. Um, whether it's on their back or, or whether it's in a shopping cart or whether it's in a wagon, they they carry around their life on their back. So when you're dealing with the homeless people, um, you you realize that winter isn't just the culprit. That summer and extreme heat is definitely you know they need clean water, they need fresh water, cold water. Um, they need a place to come in and just get out of the sun and and rejuvenate a bit because they have no protection. Um, you know, so it's it, it's it's just as important in the summer as it is in the winter. Mm. Uh,
1: if people wanted uh, to help, people who are listening to this conversation, uh, what can they donate? What do you need, uh, whether it's blankets or or just donations? Uh, where can they go to help?
7: Well, the easiest place, of course, is on our website, which is www.sumsplace.ca. And there's a Donate tab there. The financial is always a great help because of course when you get government funding um, it comes with um, restrictions and whatnot. whereas when it's a financial from a private donor or a corporate donor we can go out and buy blankets or buy sleeping bags and at our location called Sums Place on King George Avenue we have a donation center there the big thing right now uh, to be totally honest is sleeping bags because at least people can get in and get warm and zip it up. Um, we always need, of course, jackets and toques and boots. But sleeping bags and blankets right now are are paramount to uh, to staying warm.
1: All right. So if anybody wants to donate, uh, whether it's financially or donate blankets, when in this case, as you say, sleeping bags are, are most required. They can go to uh, your location on King George uh, or yes. at sumsplace.com, S-O-M-S. Place, P L A C E dot C A or dot com. C A. Dot C A. Sumsplace dot C A, uh, where they can get more information. Uh, Jack, thank you so much for your time today and all the best to you.
7: Oh, thank you very much. Really appreciate you.